0: In Bechukotai, in the midst of one of the most searing curses ever to have been uttered to a nation by way of warning, the sages found a fleck of pure gold. Listen to what Moses says, describing a nation in flight from its enemies. I will bring despair into the hearts of those of you who survive in enemy territory. The sound of a wind-blown leaf will make them run, and they will run scared as if running from a sword. They will fall even when no one is chasing them. They will stumble over each other, as they would before a sword, even though no one is chasing them. You will have no power to stand before your enemies. There is on the face of it nothing positive whatsoever in this nightmare scenario. But the sages said, they will stumble over each other, Read this as, they will stumble because of one another. This teaches us that all Israel are sureties it is for one another. All Jews are responsible for one another. Now this is very odd. Why locate this principle here? Surely the whole Torah testifies to it. When Moses speaks about the reward for keeping the covenant, he does so collectively. There'll be rain in its due season. You'll have good harvests and so on. The principles that, principle that Jews have, collective responsibility, that their fate and destiny are interlinked. This could have been found in the Torah's blessings. Why search for it among its curses? The answer, I think, is this. There's nothing unique to Judaism in the idea that we're all implicated in one another's fate. That's true of the citizens of any nation. If the economy is booming, most people benefit. If there's a recession, many people suffer. If a neighbourhood is scarred by crime, people are scared to walk the streets. If there's law and order, if people don't plight to one another and come to one another's aid, there's a general sense of well-being. We are social animals, and our horizons of possibility are shaped by the society and culture within which we live. All of this applied to the Israelites so long as they were a nation in their own land. But what when they suffered defeat and exile and were eventually scattered across the earth? They no longer had any of the conventional lineaments of a nation. They weren't living in the same place. They didn't share the same language of everyday life. While Rashi and his family were living in Christian northern Europe and speaking French, Maimonides was living in Muslim Egypt, speaking and writing Arabic. Nor did Jews share a fate. While those in northern Europe were suffering persecution and massacres during the Crusades, the Jews of Spain were enjoying their golden age. While the Jews of Spain were being expelled and compelled to wander around the world as refugees, the Jews of Poland were enjoying a rare sunlit moment of tolerance. So in what sense were they responsible for one another? What constituted them as a nation? How, as the author of Psalm 137 put it, could they sing God's song in a strange land? There are only two texts in the Torah that speak to this situation, the situation of exile and persecution, namely the two sections of curses, one in our pasha, the other in Devarim, in Deuteronomy, in the Pasha of Kitavo. Only these passages speak about a time when Israel would be exiled and dispersed, scattered, as Moses later put it, to the most distant lands under the heaven. There are three major differences between the two curses, though. The curse in Leviticus is in the plural, that in Deuteronomy in the singular. The curses in Leviticus are the words of God, In Deuteronomy, they're the words of Moses. And the curses in Deuteronomy don't end in hope. They conclude in a vision of unrelieved bleakness. You will try to serve yourselves as slaves, male and female, but no one will want to buy you. But the curses in Leviticus, our curses in this week's parasha, end with a momentous hope. But despite all that when they are in enemy territory I won't reject them or despise them to the point of totally destroying them, breaking my covenant with them by doing so because I am the Lord their God. For their sake I'll remember the covenant with the first generation, the ones I brought out of Egypt in the sight of all the nations in order to be their God. I am the Lord. According to Leviticus even in their worst hours the Jewish people would never be destroyed. Nor would God reject them. The covenant would still be in force, and its terms still operative. This meant that Jews would still be linked to one another by the same ties of mutual responsibility they had in the land. For it was the covenant that formed them as a nation, binding them to one another, even as it bound them to God. Therefore, even when falling over one another in flight from their enemies, they'd still be bound by mutual responsibility. They'd still be a nation with a shared fate and destiny. This is a rare and special idea, and it's the distinctive feature of the politics of covenant. Covenant became a major element in the politics of the West following the Reformation as uh, Luther and Calvin taught people to get back to the Bible as people started reading the Bible because of printing they were able to afford it and they could read it in vernacular translation and that shaped revolutions throughout Europe and indeed in America. Covenant shaped political discourse in Switzerland and Holland and Scotland and England in the 17th century and of course The same convictions were held by the Pilgrim Fathers as they set sail for America, but with this difference. That covenant never disappeared from the discourse in America as it did in Europe. The result is that today the United States is the only country whose political discourse is still framed by the terms of covenant and mutual responsibility. To Textbook examples of this are Lyndon Baines Johnson's Inaugural of 1965 and Barack Obama's second Inaugural of 2013. Both used the biblical device of significant repetition, always an odd number, three or five or seven. Lyndon Baines Johnson invoked the idea of covenant five times. Barack Obama five times began paragraphs with a key phrase of covenantal politics, And these are words never used in British political life, namely, we the people. In covenant societies, it is the people as a whole who are responsible under God for the fate of the nation. As Linda Baines Johnson put it, our fate as a nation and our future as a people rest not on one citizen, but on all citizens. In Barack Obama's words, you and I as citizens have the power to set this country's course. That is the essence of covenant. We're all in this together. We the people. There is no division of the nation into rulers and ruled. We are conjointly responsible under the sovereignty of God for one another. This remains a powerful and unusual idea. What made it unique to Judaism is that it applied to a people scattered throughout the world, united only by the terms of the covenant their ancestors had made with God at Mount Sinai. But it continues, as I've argued, to drive American political discourse even today. What this idea tells us is that we are all equal citizens in the republic of faith and that responsibility cannot be delegated away to governments or presidents but belongs inalienably to each of us. We are our brother's and sister's keeper. That is what I mean by that strange, self-contradictory idea, uh, seemingly self-contradictory, that I've argued throughout all of these essays, which is that we are all called on to be leaders. Surely this can't be so. If everyone is a leader, then no one is. If everyone leads, who is left to follow? The concept that resolves the contradiction is covenant. Leadership is, as I've suggested, the acceptance of responsibility. Therefore, if we are all responsible for one another, we are all called on to be leaders, each within our sphere of influence, be it within the family, the community, the organization, or a larger grouping still. And this can sometimes make an enormous difference. In the late summer of 1999, I was in Pristina, making a BBC television programme about the aftermath of the Kosovo campaign. I interviewed General Sir Michael Jackson, then head of the NATO forces. And to my surprise, he thanked me for what my people had done. The Jewish community, he told me, had taken charge of the city's 23 primary schools. It was, he said, the most valuable contribution to the city's welfare. When 800,000 people have become refugees and then they return home, the most reassuring sign that life has returned to normal is that the schools open on time. That, he said, we owe to the Jewish people. I met the head of the Jewish community there later that day and I asked him how many Jews there actually were at the moment in Pristina. His answer, 11. The story, as I later uncovered it, was this. In the early days of the conflict, Israel had, along with other international aid agencies, sent a field medical team to work with the Kosovan Albanian refugees. They noticed that while the other agencies were concentrating on the adults, no one was working with the children. Traumatized by the conflict and far from home, they were running wild. The team phoned back to Israel and asked for young volunteers. Every youth movement in Israel, from the most secular to the most religious, sent out teams of youth leaders at two-week intervals. They worked with the children, organizing summer camps, sports competitions, drama and music events, and whatever else they could think of to make their temporary exile less traumatic. The Kosovan and Albanians were Muslims, and for many of the Israeli youth workers, it was their first contact and friendship with children of another faith. Their effort won high praise from UNICEF, the United Nations Children's Organization, and it was in the wake of this that the Jewish people, Israel, the American-based joint, and other Jewish agencies were asked to supervise the return to normality of the school system in Pristina. That episode taught me the power of chesed acts of kindness when extended beyond the across the borders of faith but it also showed the practical difference collective responsibility makes to the scope of the jewish deed well jury is small but the invisible strands of mutual responsibility mean that even the smallest Jewish community, like the one in Pristina, can turn to the entire Jewish people worldwide for help and achieve things that would be exceptional for a nation many times its size. When the Jewish people join hands in collective responsibility in Kol Yisrael HaRevim they become a formidable and global force for good.